find Titus 2, starting at verse 7, I thought it would be really lovely if we could read this together. So we're going to read together from Titus 2, verse 7, to Titus 3, verse 8. Has everybody found Mm -hmm. Titus? Oh, it's up there. Good. (laughs) Titus 2, verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show them they can be fully trained, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared to all these It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good these then are the things you should teach Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and all show gentility towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and desires. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he pointed unto us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, in being justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Thank you. Lesson number one, make sure you've downloaded the same version as the church Bible. (laughs) Those of you who um, are in the same house group as me will know that I'm interested in early church history, particularly early church history of the British Isles. 
and um, I certainly feel a, a sense of affinity with the early Celtic saints who lived on the western fringes, on the rocks with the waves crashing and uh, on the islands, particularly the western isles. And um, left to my own devices, I would definitely want to live in splendid isolation on the western fringe, surrounded by sea with crashing waves and rocks, not very many people, more sheep but not in a cave or in a stone hovel, in a nice bungalow with mod cons, views all round, <laughs> central heating. And to that carefully chosen bungalow, I would invite a few friends to share the time with me, but I would also invite them to go home. That isn't what Titus tells us about living lives as Christians. Uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that we have to live as Christians not only in this world, but not be of this world. So how do we live as Christians in today's society, in a secular and largely pagan society? How do we live in the freedom of the gospel? How do we live a godly life, engaging good works, and at the same time recognize without the saving grace of Jesus and his death on the cross, we're powerless to influence our salvation? The early church had to deal with these questions as well. Because then, as now, as believers, we're instructed to go forth and make disciples of all nations, to reach the world with the gospel. And because then, as now, society was secular, multicultural, pagan, and the political systems were generally opposed to the exclusive claims of Christianity. In the months before he was executed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said... I fear that Christians who stand with only one leg upon earth will also only stand with one leg upon heaven, in heaven. And his concern was for the Christians at the time who stood by and watched the atrocities that were happening all around him without saying anything, denying that they had any Christian responsibility in this world. And the end results, as we know, were dreadful. Our Christian values, it's true, are not of this world. Our Christian hope takes us beyond this world, but it's in this world that we are called to live out our lives as Christians. And it's this world's inhabitants that we are charged to reach with the gospel. In Titus, the Cretans, it was written to the people in Crete, are called by Paul to be different, to live their lives differently within a secular and a pagan society. And in everything, set an example by doing what is good. Paul's teaching in Titus encouraged participation in the social structures of the time rather than, and as Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed, withdrawing from it into a Christian enclave. But Paul doesn't simply urge Christians to adopt secular, rule, adopt secular rules of behaviour. Only faith in Christ, he says, can produce a Christian lifestyle. The first part of our reading deals with slaves, and I thought, oh, Tim, why start with slaves? We haven't got any slaves in this country. Well, not officially. But as I read through that and the preceding verses, which deal with the conduct of men and women in that particular society at that particular time, what struck me was that Paul is actually saying to them is, it's important that you live in integrity and recognize that our Christian life is first 
and always to be a clear expression of the will of God. For us as Christians, the grace of God is at the heart of God's covenant with us and with humanity. The grace of God signifies God's unmerited love towards us. The language that's used in verse 11 tells us that this grace found full expression in a particular event. The uh, original text says it was an epiphany to bring help, to bring salvation, and that the salvation was from sin and sin's destruction, and the salvation is available to all. Verse 12 teaches us that Christ appeared to teach us to live a new life. In Mark verse 15, we're called to repent, to change our minds, to leave behind an old way, a godless way, and turn and follow Christ. However, to be a Christian is not just to act in a certain way. In fact, it's not to act in a certain way at all. It's not to put on an acceptable performance, but it's to live a godly life. It's to allow the inward working of God's grace visibly outworked as we live out our lives on this earth, whilst we wait for the blessed hope. An acknowledgement that as Christians our hope is ultimately beyond this world in the glorious return of Christ. Moving on, verse 14 describes the death of Jesus Christ as an offering, a sacrifice, that was made for those who could not make it for themselves. Through his death and resurrection, we have been redeemed. The price for our release from Satan's prison has been paid, and we have been set free to serve God. We have been washed. God has purified us and sanctified us from the defilement of idolatry. He has claimed us to be his people out of a sinful world. He's claimed us to live in restored fellowship with him, with new eternal life. This is really good news. So what motivates us to change? Grace. There's a a little mnemonic, I don't know what you would call it, that I learned years ago, I think probably as a child, Grace, God's redemption at Christ's expense. Exodus tells us that God has always been gracious, but grace appeared visibly in Jesus Christ. Verses 11 and 12 say, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So, we're called to be different. We don't have to live by this world's expectations, but live as ambassadors for the kingdom of God. God's grace is a saving grace that teaches us godliness, to be able to say no to worldly passions. In the past, we lived enslaved by our sin. We needed a saviour. Sin distorted our lives and made us less than we were created to be. Titus reminds us that we do not have to live like this, damaged by sin, by false expectations or defined, by prejudice or bigotry. Jesus dealt with everything that is ungodly on the cross so we can live our lives free to believe what God says about us and to be the people he created us to be. Because we are saved by grace, grace motivates us to change. 
we don't change from fear, but out of faith, because of what Jesus has done for us. So we can pursue godliness, a godly life in our daily choices. We do not have to stay trapped in sin. The appearing of grace of Jesus motivates us to live saved lives now, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is the goal of God's redemptive work. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, we as believers take up the privileged position of being heirs. Every one of us share this position equally before God. This means that as Christians we can boldly live the lives that God wants for us because God has intervened in our history to bring about a change. The whole salvation process, rebirth and renewal, justification and hope is a reality for us. And it's grounded, Paul says, in the events of Christ's ministry and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But to experience this new reality, we must actively decide to step up, to step forward. The reality of the Christian life is not experienced through reciting creeds, but by living it in faith. As David said this morning, we often use the word hope instead of longing, or we say hope instead of wishful thinking. But the hope described in the Bible is different. As David said, it's certainty. Our expectation that Christ will return is a certainty. Many of you know that um, my life over recent years hasn't worked out the way I either expected or planned. Life hasn't been easy. And being a Christian does not and has not exempted me from the human fears and emotions that go along with these circumstances. But through and in it all, through the whole mess of what happened and is happening, because of God's grace and mercy, because of his love and kindness towards me, there was an in and is one thing of which I am certain. That because he died for me, that because he redeemed me, that because he is coming again for me, for all of us, I am secure. I am secure in a way that the world could never give. And goodness me, does that make a difference? The world can never offer that to anyone. Only Jesus can by his work on the cross. And the world needs it. So, as we wait for the blessed hope, his coming again in glory, we still struggle with sin. We still have to make choices daily to live a godly life. But when Christ comes again, all wickedness will be removed from this world and we will know the fulfilment of our hope. Hebrews 9 tells us, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So, while we wait in hope, God is still gathering his people. 
People are still waiting to hear the good news that there is hope, a certainty for real change in their lives now. We look around and we see apathy or open opposition to the gospel. But actually, if we scratch the lives of others, very often there are darker waters flowing beneath the surface. Waters of fear, of hopelessness, of anxiety, of pain, of relationship breakdowns, of illness. The message of Titus is that in befriending the world, in living a godly life in this world, whilst we wait in hope, we bring with us the opportunity for others to experience the washing of the Holy Spirit, to wash away the dark waters and replace them with the pure waters of Jesus. Knowing then that our hope is certain, why live as if we're not his people? What we think and believe shapes us. No one is too bad that God's grace and mercy cannot reach them. No one is too defiled who cannot be renewed and washed clean. No one out there is too bad. No one out there is too defiled. God, yes, he appears as our judge, but he also, as Louise said, appears in kindness and love to totally transform us of people washed clean. The makeover shows on the television, um, you know, the tooth whitening, the Simon Cowell look, <laughs> they change the outside. Only God can do a total makeover, a 100% makeover from the inside out. The writer of Titus, in, in an earlier chapter, he betrays a certain prejudice about Cretan society. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. It's not a very nice thing to say. It actually comes from the 6th century BC, and it was referring to their behaviour and their beliefs about a Greek god. I think he was Greek, the god Zeus. Prejudice sticks, doesn't it? Even from six centuries earlier. And it sticks today, as much as it did to the Cretans 2,000 years ago. I wonder when Jesus' contemporaries said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Did people laugh? Did they agree? Are our expectations and beliefs about others shaped by such remarks? And how does that affect how we witness to them, if we witness to them at all? A few years ago, I did a, a course. And at the first meeting, we had to go around the circle and introduce ourselves. When it came to my turn, um, I said that I was a Christian and I went to an evangelical charismatic church. Uh, Now, I didn't say that to be godly or to be a witness. I said it because I thought I'd get it in first before anyone else said it. (laughs) As we carried on around the circle, one woman said that she'd once been an evangelical Christian, but that she'd turned her back on God because... She was in a long-term lesbian relationship and they'd just been joined through a civil partnership. And then a man said that he once had been a charismatic evangelical as well. But he found the evangelical God far too harsh and judgmental and had started to explore other faiths. He said he was now mostly Buddhist with a few other bits thrown in. Then he added that he was a retired Anglican vicar. (laughs) And that he was still on the list, not in this diocese. 
and that he stood in at local churches when the vicar was away. (laughs) Both of them added that they didn't want any of that religious stuff here from me. How my evangelical bristles bristled. (laughs) How can a church have a vicar who's mostly Buddhist? How can a lesbian expect a church to ignore her lifestyle? Someone's got to sort this out. The the bishop, but, you know, he needs to know. As the course progressed, and at the last session, after we'd all made friends with each other, laughed together, joked together, found out a bit more about each other, we had to sit in that same circle, and we had to tell each other what impact the meetings had had on us. I was absolutely amazed when the woman said that she had learned through me that God actually did love her and that the vicar said that he'd realised that he now knew that God wasn't the harsh judgmental God of the evangelicals but was actually quite loving, caring and kind. All I can say about that is that despite my prejudices and fears the Holy Spirit was able to work through me to touch those two people just by being there, by befriending them. I don't know what the next stage of the journey was for either of those two people, but I do know that I played a small part in it and that God has a plan for them. So what about us here? Do we keep the world at arm's length so that prejudices about us as a church, as Christians, as people remain unchallenged because we don't give people the opportunity to really get to know us? Is there anything we believe about ourselves that is based on prejudice? Our friends, our neighbours, each of us, we can all be free because Jesus died on the cross for each one of us. Each one of us can walk in a new life. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9 we read, But you, and that's all of us, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Each one of us here, if we know Jesus as our saviour, is a royal priest in his kingdom. Priesthood means being different, being set apart, being distinctive, being servants of our God and King. And I would suggest that being a priest is to be recognised amongst our friends, our families, our colleagues, as someone who can point them to Jesus, someone who the Holy Spirit can flow through to reach them. And as we live our lives in the light and grace of the Gospel, then the Holy Spirit will use us to bring the hope of salvation into their lives. Thank you.